Biff Bampop presents Heroes and Villains. And now your host, E.A. Henson. Hey everybody, my guest this episode is a comics publicist and founder of Don't Hide PR. A lot of the great books that we feature on Biff Bampop come to us through her. Best-selling author of Heavy Metal Headbang and the forthcoming Song Over the Bones, here's my conversation with Melissa Mazaros. There we go. How's it going, Melissa? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing well. That was very spontaneous. Very spontaneous. So I'm, I'm again, like, I'm glad we got the chance to actually sit down and chat uh, finally after all the technological issues that we were experiencing trying to make this thing happen. Um, so just going back, uh, I don't know how long I've been writing for Biff Bam Pop now, but you have been like just a constant source of uh, good comic books for me. Like it's just been amazing. Like whenever I see your name attached or the Don't Hide, Hide PR name attached to an email, I know that I'm going to be getting something good. So, so thank you for that. Well, thank you. No, I, I try to be pretty strident about, you know, what I'm putting out there and what I'm vetting. And, you know, my biggest thing is that, you know, the folks that I'm working with have integrity and they un- they have an understanding of what the medium of comics is more than anything. So what is it, what do you look for in a client when you take on a client for uh, doing comics PR? Typically just that, like I said, it, it all falls back on integrity. Um, honestly, I love backstories. When folks are creating something that they're very passionate about, you know, no matter what, it is, whether it be like a medical thing or it'd be historical or they've just been working on it for a very long time where I've had clients tell me they've been dreaming up this comic since they were 10 years old and now they're creating it at 35 or 40. You can kind of capture the essence of a person um, through that kind of work. And that's the kind of things that I always look for, especially like when I'm doing consultations and um, if I can hear it in their voice and I can hear how passionate they are about it, it's definitely a project that I want to put my name on. Okay. Now, is that a skill that you've kind of just refined over years and years of doing PR? Yes, because a lot of times when you're working in-house in PR at any facet of entertainment or even, you know, even outside of entertainment, I guess, you just kind of forced to do things that you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be a lot more creative to sell things um, you know, to make profit for somebody else. And in this situation, uh, I have a basically autonomy to decide what I work with and who I work with. And to me, that's just the best thing in the whole world. Cause there's nothing worse than being a rep and supporting something that you can't stand behind. I have to imagine. And, uh, what led you to doing PR for comics? I know in your bio it said you had done uh, like basically music and film PR. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I didn't even intend to be working in PR at all. It just kind of came naturally to me. Um, you know, it started in music and and then I moved to film because I actually tried to get a job in comics prior to that. But because I had worked in film, Dark Horse, take a se- they took a second look at me and they were like, yeah, maybe you are a good fit because you understand how the entertainment side and the comic side kind of 
uh, mesh together. Yeah. But it's been 20 years plus going strong. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's fairly impressive. Now, what uh, what got you into comics? Because I, I assume that you don't wind up with a career in comic book public relations without being a fan of the medium. That is very true. Um, I meet I meet some people that aren't fans of comics, but um, I think it's it's more, and I'll touch on that and mainly because people don't want to be biased to their work, especially as a publicist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very different in that way, but. Um, yeah, I did. I, I always like comics, uh, mainly, you know, I pick up Calvin and Hobbes and, and it wasn't until like my mid to late teens, I got really into the Zap comics and the San Francisco comics, all the underground stuff uh, from the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and yeah, like well into college, I was like reading American Splendor. And then I picked up, you know, a lot of stuff from Fanographics and I became really interested in that whole B-side of everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, with regards to that. So it's, it's always refreshing to hear somebody that is interested in comics, but didn't have the traditional kind of like traditional with heavy air quotes, uh, like the superhero aspect of comics, because that superhero comics to me is tantamount to junk food. I enjoy reading that stuff, but it's not really nourishing for me at all. Yeah, I never really got into it. I never understood. I mean, I look at those sort of stories and I just see franchises mm -hmm. and, and opportunities for people to sell merchandise. <laughs> I know that sounds really bad. I don't really feel like I'm not saying there's not stories behind superheroes. I'm I'm just more interested in the stories that people don't typically want to tell or want to read, I guess. I like the more yeah. creative artsy side of things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, if you look at anything that like Marvel is doing right now, they're really just a big intellectual property farm, uh, you know, just kind of trying to set up stuff that they, the creators will hope will get them some residuals down the line if they option it for a subplot in one of their, their blockbuster movies. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the times and things that I'm dealing with most right now are creators who have done that gamut and they're reverting backwards to their independent work. Um, they say, all I'm known for is Marvel or DC. Um, and I want to be seen from my own work and my own scripts or my own writing and things that actually have value and have meaning. Yeah, I, I've seen, I don't know, I, I can't, I've lost count of the amount of creators that will do like a stint on Batman and then they go the independent comics route. Now that they're an established name, they actually have that following that'll come along. And, you know, people that like their work on Batman are willing to take a chance on something they traditionally wouldn't pick up for their, their weekly poll list. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that feeds into the problem that we're having with shops right now as well. Um, that there's, you're dealing with such a saturated market that I think a lot of things that are even better and should be on shelves and should be in the poll lists are overlooked. And that's also a stance that I take in taking on independent projects and not just projects with publishers. Okay. Now, you mentioned a couple of comic books. Do you have any uh, previously like American Splendor? And uh, do you have any like favorite creators or creators that you will always like pick up if you see their name attached to something? Um, I don't like to be biased. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I always feel like the, the reason why I think I can be good at my job is because I don't like to give an opinion. 
about um, <laughs> anybody. I, you know, I, I don't want somebody to say, oh, you know, what kind of comics do you like? And I'm like, well, I don't want to tell you what kind of comics I like because then it goes into a leaning factor where mm-hmm. people are whispering and saying, oh, she only likes blah, 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 blah. Um, but if I were to be, you know, transparent about my personal taste, you know, uh, Daniel Klaus always like, like Ghost World to me and Eight Ball were like the touchstone of the reason why, you know, I really wanted to move into the medium a thousand percent. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And that's stuff. I don't want to say that's stuff that I came to late in the game, but obviously I grew up like a lot of other kids where it was just nothing but like Marvel and DC up until the point I hit you know, high school. And then I kind of like, luckily for me, a small comic shop opened in the town I'm from and the guy that was running it kind of trafficked in your standard stuff, but he also had like the large selection of independent books I had seen at that time. And he was a real advocate for, you know, not just moving stock, but he would like to put books in people's hands that he read and loved. So that was always, that's kind of what got me started on the path of, you know, reading more independent books. That's awesome. That's always a good way to go. And I didn't grow up with a comic shop in my hometown. Um, I got all my comics from the grocery store and as collections uh, from the bookstore. So kudos. Yeah, this is like I said. This was this was late high school, early college. So like beforehand, I was getting my my books from the drugstore at the corner. So it's uh, I think that's kind of how a lot of people started in like the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Now, where did you grow up? Where's home? I grew up in Pennsylvania, about mm-hmm. um, forty five miles north of Pittsburgh. And okay. That's where that's where I am now. It's Pittsburgh back here um <laughs> so yeah just a little small town um it's actually I, I grew up in a borough it had like 500 people in it oh wow yeah it was very suburban though um but everything had a lot of urban sprawl so mm-hmm. nothing okay. interesting <laughs> now what led you back to uh pennsylvania because i know uh from your book uh heavy metal headbang that you had spent time in the Pacific Northwest and the Southwest and all points at. Yeah. Um, mainly, you know, I, I was a kid in the nineties and I just wanted to be around grunge and that had been my life goal since I was probably about 13 or 14 years old. So, um, when, when I, you know, was old enough to move out, that's just where I decided to go. And I stayed there for 20 years. Um, and the reason why I ended up moving back is like a couple of reasons, um, mainly being, you know, inflation is ridiculous over there. Um, the cost of living is insane. Um, but I think, you know, after moving back and forth to Portland proper, I would say eight times it was because, you know, the economy is so touch and go there. Um I just decided, you know, I, you know, I went to the country and my house burned down and I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to quit trying. <laughs> uh, and, and it's it's not like um, I don't I don't see it as a failure because I see it as an opportunity to one, you know, bring my money back where it's needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of sort of, you know, look at the arts and, you know, see what I can do to fix this place because it needs some fixing up and um outside of you know we got some people from like brooklyn and san francisco defecting 
and coming here and, and, you know, low cost of living. Um, there's a lot of history here, uh, but the art scene can definitely use some work. Um, and also, you know, what we have um, is very basic lifestyle, um, traditional, like steel mills and secretaries and healthcare. And that's pretty much where you draw the line. Um, but they did just put a Google campus here. So I think that, you know, and there, there's a lot of um, growth that's happening, at least in the area that I live in. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what I can do to apply my skills in different ways. Um, yeah. And being a part of that growth. Okay. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but like Seattle, that's nothing but, well, largely it's uh, like Nike and Microsoft stuff, right? Portland is. Portland. Uh, yeah. And they have Nike, Adidas um h i think it's yeah yeah and uh microsoft is out in in washington outside mm. seattle there um there's another tech company outside of portland that i can't quite put my finger on and they also have like a lot of uh art culture uh like leica is from there you know did per um did, 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 uh, a coraline yeah yep. yeah um but seattle is very much amazon territory once Amazon scooped in there, you know, the entire downtown was just totally taken over. And I call them like the lemmings because they would li live up on Capitol Hill and you would see them go down the bridge in the morning to, you know, Amazon campus. So the lemming crawl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know uh, Travis Knight, the guy that is in charge over at Leica, he is the son of the guy who founded Nike, if I recall correctly. Oh, wow. Oh, I had no idea. That's There's so cool. a, it's a kind of a, you know, Travis Knight obviously is very talented as a director and animator, but uh, do you remember California Raisins? Oh yeah. I love it. Claymation. Yeah. So the guy that created that, Will Vinton had a studio, which uh, Phil Knight, I believe is the guy that founded Nike. He bought a controlling stake in the studio and kind of put uh, Travis Knight in there and had him learn the craft from Will and then eventually they forced out Will Vinton and became Leica. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so that's really amazing. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. And I think uh, Will Vinton has long since passed, but I think after he lost the studio, he kind of was teaching animation at a local community college. So it's kind of a, you know, there's the, the cloud and the silver lining, but uh, that's what I recall reading about them. Wow. But yeah, still. The California Raisins, and they had those, those specials on television. Yes. Yes, yeah. they have. I watch the uh, the Claymation Christmas special every year. I love that. I didn't. I mean, I guarantee you can find it on YouTube, but wasn't there one with dinosaurs as well? The dinosaurs were in the, uh, the Christmas special. They hosted the Christmas special. Okay. That's where I'm getting that. And I know that they did a, one meet the raisins where they mm -hmm. were doing all the uh music uh like like um bb wonder and <laughs> yeah and they were trying to make it big it was their backstory i love that yeah, one. all the all the classic motown type stuff yep yeah yeah it was really i love that one and the and the bitter grapefruit <laughs> <laughs> oh so funny so you're currently working on uh song over the bones which is a is it, would you say it's a sequel to Heavy Metal Headbang or is it kind of just another memoir where are you going to like 
talk me through the book. I read the synopsis that you sent me and was, I can't, I can't wait for it. So I'm interested to hear more about it. Thank you. Um, it is a continuation of heavy metal and in the way that, you know, it ended in the epilogue with the fire and, mm -hmm. and my house burning down. Um, I hadn't intended to do the continuation, but I kind of felt obliged to because I I had finished I had finished writing Heavy Metal Headbang right around the time as I was dealing with all of that stuff. Um, with uh, you know, I was coming out of one really bad thing, and literally within days, in days, you know, I I closed the MVA case uh, from you know my head injury, and I think it was maybe three days later my house burned down. So oh. it was it was just kind of. Yeah, so it kind of rolls into that a little bit, but actually the the structure is a little bit different. It's still somewhat nonlinear, mm -hmm. um, but you know, I I really, you know, I wanted to touch on um, something really important to me was like the tropes of what love is considered in Hollywood, and I use the application of the fire uh, as kind of like uh, a metaphor for my failed marriage which I did get married after like three months after my accident, which I didn't even consider being a danger at the mm -hmm. time. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we should probably fill in the blanks with uh, heavy metal headbang, your previous book being a memoir slash story of recovery from when you sustained a, a head injury on your way to a concert. Yes. On my way to see Judas Priest, someone clipped me with their car in a crosswalk because they got a little impatient and didn't want to wait. Um, yeah, and and it's all about the the trials and tribulations, literally, of what people put you through when you're dealing with the legal system as an innocent person who who you know <laughs> innocently was hit by a car, and you're also dealing with head trauma and um, mourning the loss of yourself and you know, regaining your strength through all of that. And I, I have to be honest, like I, I done a lot of press and, you know, when that book has being released and I, you know, I've five years out, mm -hmm. uh, basically it'll be five years this, this month. And, um, I am still having setbacks. I was so shocked at this. I, I went to Emerald city back in March and, you know, it's been a really busy year. There's a lot of going on. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of stimuli. And I, you know, I made a big life change when I moved from West to East, but, you know, I still stay in my four walls. I don't really do too much, get too excitement, too much excitement in my life. And, um, but because of all of these stressors that had been happening in between middle of February and the middle of March, all the way well into now, um, I'm actually having physical setbacks again. Um, like my brain gets really fatigued and it feels like basically like I'm drunk all the time. <laughs> and that hasn't happened in several years, um, probably about three or four years. And, and I'm dealing with that. And I have been dealing with that for the past uh, month now. Yeah. Now, as part of the, the fallout of this, do you have like a regular like neurologist that you uh, like a, or a general practitioner that you follow up with regards to the physical setbacks that you experience? No, because this is the first time that I've really? had that. Yeah. It's really the first time. Like, uh, I know that there are still residual clots in my head. 
because mm-hmm. uh, I actually have um, a clotting disorder called factor five Leiden. Um, and that is actually holding three different clots in my brain right now. Oh, wow. Um, so it could be exacerbated and that's basically what's happening. Um, I, I, the other week I had an issue with a seizure, um, and it just happens because I'm overstimulated. I'm overtired. It doesn't matter how much I sleep. I could sleep 10, 12 hours a night. I could, and I still wake up and, you know, do vestibular exercises. Um, I do see a massage therapist somewhat regularly just to keep blood flow. Um, in mm-hmm. you know, my brain, <laughs> but no, I, I, I can honestly say, and, and this is something I never touched on before. I think we're far enough removed from it that I can, that I wasn't really granted the advantage of getting enough money to where I can establish long-term care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I recall from the book, uh, you wrote as um, much as you could about the settlement that you received. And uh, I can't recall the exact phrasing, but it kind of seemed like the offer was a little bit of a, like a take it or leave it type thing. Is that correct? Yeah. They backed me into a corner. Hmm. Um, When you go into um, deposition and you're sitting with all the attorneys, it's, it's really just all for show. I mean, I watch the attorneys, you know, talk baseball stats before sitting down and getting serious. Um, And they had been, you know, they'd worked together before. And, you know, and when you're going through mediation, basically you're sitting with a retired judge and uh, we were over Zoom at the time. And, and, you know, the judge had said, you know, you can take this to court, but they're going to judge you by the way you look. They're going to judge your character. It's going to be a character assassination. And the things that they, you know, especially um, insurance companies, the things that they pull to try and make you look like a perpetrator and not a victim is uncanny. And it's upsetting. It's very upsetting. I, I went through two and a half years of anxiety and tears and stress because I was told, you know, uh, you, they have people watching you. Um, they ostracize your character. They want to know everything about your history, all the way about your mental health. Um, I, you know, I, as I said in, in the book, I had lost a child in 2010, and they tried to say that you know I threw myself in front of a car because it was nearing the anniversary. They they do every single character assassination to the point where they wear you down so thin that they can say take it or leave it. And by the time you get, you know, you, you, you do your attorney's fees and then they, they actually, you know, I had over a hundred thousand dollars in medical, the hospital will actually put a lien on your payment and they'll take a chunk of that too. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's a very corrupt system that I hope to never have to deal with again. Yeah. You know, knock on wood. Hopefully that's not something anybody should have to deal with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was a huge incentive for me to write the book. So I, I didn't even, I, I was not even prepared because I didn't even think about like filing a lawsuit. I was delirious in a hospital bed. I'm like, well, this is it. And had not the, the people around me say, you need to file a lawsuit. You know, I, I would have never thought to do it. And I, I honestly, I wish I hadn't in the long run. It, it caused me more stress 
than mm -hmm. I actually needed. Mm -hmm. Now with writing the book and detailing the whole experience is like, I'm, you know, a novice with regards to legal matters. Is there, were there any concerns about, uh, you know, backlash of, you know, putting stuff like this on the page, you know, that's, I know you were already, you had already settled and everything, but were there any concerns about it coming back around to you? I never had any concerns because there was no real confidentiality clause that I could recall and nor did I, you know, use anybody's names. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's the only place where you can really get into defamation and libel, but even defamation and libel, like as publicists, I know that it has to deal with another person's health, another person's family status or accusations that cause defamation. So I was basically in the clear with that for the most part. I'm going to knock on wood over that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, my, my biggest goal was, you know, and that's even like the people that were in my life. I never made judgment. I never passed judgment on anybody in that book. And I don't know if that a lot of people caught on to that. The biggest part, the message of it was like, I was being judged. You know, part of it was I was being judged. Part of it, I was doing this recovery, but I refused to allow the other people in the book with no names, of course, monikers mm. uh, for me to pass judgment on them. But I will say that each instance in that book is all matter of factuality. Um, yeah. And that's that's the thing that I'm running into with this book, too. This, this upcoming book, uh, Song Over the Bones, because I, I do have reservations about what I can and can't say. So I tried to keep it as much centered as possible on the narrative, mm -hmm. uh, my own personal narrative. And even my editor said, um, you know, on the first pass, uh, they said, there's no story. I said, there is a story. It's just not in the construction in which you would expect it. And took a second look at it and said, oh, I guess I see that now. Um, and there's a reason for that. I am very protective of people in my life. Um, I don't ever want them to feel subject to ridicule or um, even like having insecurities that I am writing about them. So I yeah, kind of put everything at face value. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things as a you know published writer, especially somebody who's uh, doing a memoir. You know, people I would you know, have to imagine people in your social circle would wonder if you know if this is something that's going to wind up in a book at some point, and you know act accordingly or be more guarded. Uh, that does me bring me back around to the first book because everything you said is the case. It's all very factual and names have been changed, but have you had people uh, that were depicted in the book reach out to you that had read the book and, you know, had like a bone to pick or just wanted to discuss what was written? No, because the people who are closest to me don't read my work. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing. Um, I've heard people say, I know the story. I don't need to read it. I have actually requested that my family does not read my work because hmm. um, there are things that they don't know about and I don't want them to see it. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't want them to read it and say, well, why did this happen? But I will say, you know, I, I, I've always been curious because I know that 
my friend's parents have read the book. I know that my parents' friends have read the book, but I never get any backlash about anything I say. And that's what it goes, it goes back to being just completely honest about a situation and not passing judgment and not saying this, this was a bad person, or this is this horrible thing that they did. I I don't, I'm not interested in character assassination. It's just not my thing. Yeah. I never got that impression when reading the book. It's all, again, very matter of fact, there wasn't anything particularly scintillating in the book, or I didn't come away thinking that the person that she wrote about is a bad person per se. Um, so I, I can, I can totally see that. Yeah. And I struggled a lot. Um, you know, there was a lot taken out of that book too, about the things that I was saying, you know, get pretty hostile mm-hmm. about, you know, cause like there were, there was residual anger, of course, because, um, all this unfairness and this, this person who, who did this thing to me wouldn't even acknowledge that. And, you know, the biggest, I even would say, like, people said to me, like, I'll just go drop it on their, go drop the book on their porch, <laughs> like a stick it note that says thank you or something. I was like, no, because I can't. I legally am not allowed to contact that person, which I, you know, even before all of this, I thought about over and over and over again. And I said to myself, well, what makes me think that they're not sorry? What makes me think, because in the legal system, they they divide you pretty quickly mm-hmm. um i've heard things i've heard things i i you know i've heard impressions from other people who were there about this person but that's not fair to me to make that assumption it's mm. really not um i could be mad about it but in the long run i know that it has a lot to do with the legality and the attorneys and the insurance company and and who's going to prove fault and all this other stuff so I can only be mad so much. So of course, all of that stuff had to be removed. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I could see how that would be like, you know, sticky from a legal perspective. And also it doesn't really, I don't really, it doesn't really jive with the rest of the book as it's presented, I feel. Right, right. And so, oh, so go ahead. Go, no, I was just going to say, no, go <laughs> ahead, go ahead. So, You did the first book, you got everything out with regards to that. When did it dawn on you or when did it occur to you? You said there was like a postscript to the book, but then there was just, uh, when, when did it occur to you that there was going to be, there was enough for another book? Um, that would have to be when I got to New Mexico, because, um, after we had, we were relocated about eight times. within just a matter of months months and we took a short-term lease and and stayed in inner city in eugene oregon which both of us i did not like i personally did not like it it was just kind of like we're here because we're stuck here Mm -hmm. um we had a a couple of disagreements um because the land you know the, the property that we had um was very beautiful and it was in the middle of the willamette national forest um and uh, he wanted to move back there and live on the land because uh, he said it would grow back. And I, I said, absolutely not. So that caused a little bit of friction between us. And I said, well, you know, let's make a compromise and make a list of places that we could live. 
And we settled on New Mexico because you know, the logic was there's more dirt than trees. <laughs> uh, so, so that was our compromise. Um, when I got there, I saw a change in my partner that I, it was like a flip switched. It was so bizarre. And I, I, you know, looking back, I could see a degradation process and, and, um, some people handle grief in very different, you know, everybody handles grief in different way, but it, you know, my, my motivation, um, I had to move forward because it was something I couldn't change. And, and my partner's motivation was like, I just want to stand still. And that did create a lot of friction, especially even with um, how kind everybody was about, you know, GoFundMe and helping us, you know, replenish our house because we we had nothing. We literally had nothing. I, I, I have like a couple things around my house now that I call OGs, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the clothes I was wearing. Um I do have like a set of mala beads I got from the Brian Jonestown massacre, but I really don't have much of my original stuff. I, I, it's kind of nice moving back here too, because people have stuff that was mine in high school and they gave it to me. And I was like, that's really cool. Um, but uh, sorry, I didn't mean to get derailed on that, but that no. was around, around the time that I started seeing that there was a story here. Um, but it, it ended up being something completely different than what I was originally working on, like I said, I was moving forward and I felt that I would take solace in the fact that I could write about these things to synthesize them. And that's, that's what every writer does um, to kind of make, you know, sense out of chaos. And um, unfortunately things took a turn for the worse when I was in New Mexico. And um <laughs> you read the synopsis. I did. Um, yeah, my my partner up and left and ghosted me in a marriage, which is unheard of. Yeah, that's uh, not really a thing that traditionally happens. No, that is not a thing. And I can honestly say I have not seen him since, since the day he left. Um, and I think the thing that I struggled with the most is that I was thousands of miles away from anyone I knew in the middle of the desert um, and he was gone. And uh, that's when the narrative definitely started to change mm -hmm. because I realized while well, you're in this displacement, you know, not having a home, not having belongings, um, my friends were really there for me uh, in ways that I'd never seen friendship before. And way somebody standing up for me in ways like I had one girlfriend fly to New Mexico and say, you're not in a good place. We're going to get out of here. So we packed up half of the stuff. I, I, I thought, you know, my partner was going to come back. Mm -hmm. So I left the rent checks and I texted and I said, I'm gone. You can have everything. We're good to go. Um, but then, you know, still still didn't reappear. And I had to fly back down there. Another girlfriend of mine helped me, you know, clean up the house and, and make it livable again. And my landlord uh, was kind enough to sever our, you know, lease agreement because they they knew what was going on. Um, 
and it's a lot more heinous than than I let on initially. Um, so yeah, uh, it's been a, it's it's been like this sense of finding home and transition and what is home. You know, that's the biggest takeaway. Is like, is it a place? Is it a person? Is it a relationship? Um, and and kind of breaking all the tropes that were fed, you know, at, you know, at least as a woman. Um, and what Hollywood portrays as love, but you're trying to create this balance of how society is changing and what the expectations are and really taking, you know, owning your own strength and, and really just saying like, wow, I've been cut down to the fucking core. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to swear there. <laughs> no, we're, we're okay. <laughs> okay. I apologize. Um, you can say whatever you want. Um, you know, you're basically, you know, you're dealing with this head injury and, you know, that cut me down and, and that isolated me. And then this cut me down even further. Um, and, you know, what can I do? What can I do? But I was really lucky to have the support system that I have, you know. Now, is that something, the support system, is that something you, like, I'm, I'm asking all these questions that I feel like are going to spoil the book for me. So it's, <laughs> no. it's like, I have all these follow-up questions, but I know they're probably going to be addressed in the book. So I, I suppose I should ask when the book is tentatively going to come out. That I don't have an answer for. Okay. Um, Cause you just submitted a draft, right? I just, yeah, I submitted the draft and with the publisher and, uh, you know, there is going to be a heavy metal headbang documentary. Really? Uh, yes. Um, it has been optioned. And uh, there is a certain comics creator who was asked to do the illustrations. Oh. <laughs> um, and I think we're kind of looking at the long term, you know, as a publicist, I kind of have to look at that um, mm -hmm. and saying, like, how is this going to bridge? Because the treatment that I read... Um, they do want to include the fire. So would that be a lead into this book coming out? Because I kind of view it as these two separate pieces of work in mm -hmm. ways. They can, you know, overlay each other, but I see them as very independent pieces of work. Yeah. Okay, so they're not really companion pieces then. They could be if you wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I worry about second album slump. <laughs> not, that, <laughs> not that I worry... Um, you know, I, I didn't write the first book thinking about an audience at mm -hmm. all. And I didn't write this one thinking about an audience. Um, much to my chagrin, my editor doesn't feel as strongly about this book. Um, but my editor is also in a different position than I am. And he's male. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think that there there's as much understanding between. And I really want to, you know, breaking the story arc. That was mm -hmm. really my my focus with this. Um, I think about the way the structure of eternal sunshine, but the message of high fidelity. But you have, you know, uh, this thing called misery lit. Um, and that's a big thing over in the UK. I didn't know that heavy metal headbang was considered misery lit. So <laughs> that's I, always that's got to be refreshing. Just finding yeah. out that you're writing for a genre you didn't know anything about. Oh, absolutely. I'm like, yes, I love this. Um, so I kind of ran with that and took that misery lit piece to the next level. And I said, I'm going to write a modern 
millennial feminist tragedy. There is no, there's no, I can honestly say, and I know that they're going to try and get me to plug an epilogue in there <laughs> <laughs> with some sort of glimmer. Um, But I can honestly say like, this is a standalone story where I don't even think it has that level. Uh, whatever, just, you know, going back to Ghost World is a perfect example, Daniel Klaus. Like Ghost World has no resolution. It just ends. Um. There yeah, are like, words like life, right? Like life, life, there's a continuation. Life goes on. And that's exactly what is happening. And I think that it's not that I was thinking about the artistic side of this construction, but as I started piecing it together, I started seeing it as, you know, what would this look like as a picture on the wall? How would this read? Um, and it's also that there's red tape. There's a lot of red tape. Um, where I'm actually using comparisons, uh, like the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial is one comparison. Mm -hmm. um, ironically enough, after I left New Mexico, that area I was living that I was living in caught on fire, and it was like sixty-eight million dollars worth of damages. Wow! So you got out at the right time, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's one part in the book where I make a reference if I was being followed by an ifrit. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and it's it's this juxtaposition of taking fairy tales um, and even like myths and applying them in ways that make sense for modern day and also mm -hmm. breaking those tropes. So a lot of the history, uh, I use Hans Christian Andersen as the first, as a prime example, um, and how a lot of those stories were written as almost parable. I mean, a fable. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people don't know that Hans Christian Andersen was queer and had a queer lover and the Little Mermaid dies at the end. Like, that's the that's that's what I'm taking from that. But, you know, the opening of this book is talking about this juxtaposition of what the Little Mermaid really was and what Disney made it and how that projection caused this idealized romance and a lot of people's heads, you know, growing up in, in the late 80s and early 90s. And it was a continuation um, how, you know, television made everything so profitable through this idea of romance and soundtracks and Prince of Thieves and, <laughs> you know, and basically just being really upset that that was what I bought into. Yeah. And if I remember my literature classes, the original Little Mermaid was you know, very violent and upsetting and not at all like what disney turned it into so absolutely a... they cut her tongue out and her yes. and her legs hurt to walk on and she turned into sea foam because she couldn't get the prince to love her even though she danced for him all the time but that is the perfect metaphor for um a relationship that is not so stable mm -hmm. yeah um and i think you know what disney did is you know, I saw Prince Eric and I was like, bam, I'm I'm for it, you know. <laughs> and that was kind of like uh, the expectation I had uh, that you're 16 years old and you meet your forever person and you get married and the rainbow comes at the end of the movie. But in all matter of factuality, it's nothing like that. And, and, and it was took years of conditioning and it finally took this for me to see things differently uh which is crazy um you know there's speculation that um i was dealing with 
setbacks from my head injury that, you know, when I disassociated, it was like I was 15 again. Mm -hmm. And had I moved past that disassociation, that's a big question. Um, because the person I chose would, I hindsight 2020 was not somebody that I would choose as an adult. Hmm. So there's a lot to that. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, it definitely sounds like you have quite the book coming up with, the... <laughs> <laughs> do we have a, an estimated page count for the book yet? Um, it's going to be shorter, I believe. Um, right now it's, it's about 80, 83, eight by 10 pages. So we're looking at over just over 20, 23,000 words or so, I believe. Um, but we'll see, you know, editorial might want to change it or they might make me throw in an epilogue, um, or they might make me change the structure altogether. Um, now, how, mu how much say do you have in that? Because you, we talked about it being a, a, you know, a nonlinear kind of memoir. And if that it's, you know, if that's your vision for the book, how much pull does an editor have to say, no, we want this to go A to B, not A to C to B? Um, a decent amount. Because, uh, like I said, I'm not thinking about an audience reading it. And when you're so close to the subject matter, um, nonlinear narrative is actually a lot more difficult because um, readers need to be able to follow a narrative to some degree. Um, I think this is pretty straightforward outside of them asking me to put dates on everything because I put mm -hmm. locations on everything. And that's that's the unique thing about this book is that it goes by location. Um, and I kind of did that a little bit with Heavy Metal Headbang, but this one is really disjointed in ways that like you get the scene you get the setting this is where i am this is what's going on this is what's happening um but it moves you know backwards to forwards and there's a little bit of intermittence in there saying like okay this is why this happened or here's an assimilation um as i tried to make it pretty fluid with heavy mm -hmm. metal headbang yeah yeah as a reader that's not something i have a problem with i read uh Mike Dowdy, the guy who used to be in Soul Coughing, one of his memoirs, um, I think it's called I Die Each Time I Hear the Sound, and it's even more disjointed than you're describing. Like it's uh, little just non sequiturs, and it's almost like uh, almost like poetry from page to page, but they're just little remembrances and stuff, and there's not really even a coherent narrative in it. So uh, that's something I'm interested in and not adverse to. Awesome. No, like I, I think about uh, different forms of nonlinear narrative uh, to even like um, I've seen one done uh, as through the ABCs as a nonlinear narrative. Um, I've seen it, it visually constructed on a page with words. Uh, I, I've seen a bunch of different things and you just have to think about it as white space and refinement. And, and you know, I really studied this in, in you know, my graduate program. Um, but like David Shields is like a perfect example of that. And and just the mastery. Some people find it absolutely frustrating to read half a page of footnotes and half a page of narrative when you have to bounce back and forth and back and forth. But in that you find your narrative. To me, I'm more interested in the in in the message and the construction of, you know, what, you know, could could words like this instead of telling like these traditional arc stories, can they convey so much more working like an art piece? And I think the takeaway, 
you know, is objective at that point. And I, I, you know, that, that was the way that I approached this book. Hmm. Very interesting. Now you had previously mentioned the word millennial, but, um, something I was trying to reconcile is that a lot of your musical tastes are kind of that kind of Seattle, early nineties, mid nineties grunge sound. How do you, which I, which I attribute to more of a Gen X sensibility. Is that like, what, what is in a label? I should, I'm asking. So. Pennsylvania is implicitly 20 years, if not, you know, 10 or 15 years behind the times at all costs. Well, there you go. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, um, you know, growing up, I, you know, we, we had, uh, the end, uh, but they were playing everything, you know, like I, you know, I was born in 1983 mm -hmm. and, uh, but Nirvana was very readily available. It still is. I mean, even more than it is in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it, it's very substantiated here. Uh, and 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 actually, a lot of people I meet on the East Coast in general, like even outside of Pennsylvania, it's a joke. If everybody knows, like, oh yeah, we're so behind. We're so behind. That's why I said, you know, I was totally okay with moving back here now because this is Portland twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so you know maybe there is going to be a renaissance of some kind i'm i you know I, i'm projecting just trying to stay ahead of the hipsters uh yeah i guess so maybe maybe <laughs> that that's the thing um so let's uh, close it out on what are some of your favorite uh grunge bands oh geez yeah how much time you got um no like uh <laughs> I, I got a whole list well mother love bone uh, mainly it's been like my go-to that apple is just perfection i don't like pearl jam that's the funny thing i don't like pearl jam i feel like their whole dynamic changed once andy wood passed mm -hmm. um but the fastbacks uh you know dead moon uh if you really want to get into semantics pierced arrows came later um you know melvin's huge melvin's fan huge melvin's fan like i'm i'm buddies with like their tour manager <laughs> <laughs> like i have like eight you know melvin's tattoos um who else is there young fresh fellows uh i could get more obscure <laughs> <laughs> bundle of hiss the blackouts um i i really i'm actually really interested i you know i i just moved i moved from olympia washington i did a brief stint there last year because mm -hmm. I really wanted to hone in and be a part of grunge because actually grunge was founded in Olympia. A lot of people don't know that. Um, I think I mentioned that in the, in the excerpt I gave you. You did. Yeah. Um, so, so grunge was actually founded by Bruce Pavitt, who's the co-founder of sub pop and uh, in, in Olympia, Washington, because he went to Evergreen state and he had a fanzine called, you know, subterranean pop culture. Um, but being there, don't you talk about a time warp? Wow wow yeah. like if you literally want to like plug into 1991 just go to olympia just sit in downtown olympia for like a day and you're like okay i'm gonna go back to the real world now <laughs> but that was exactly why i moved there in the first place it's like well, i lived in portland i live in seattle both are just you know portland is san francisco 2.0 mm -hmm. seattle is amazon territory but olympia is this little cul-de-sac in the middle basically that um it actually maintains its integrity when it comes to that time frame of music. And I was like, no, oh, you know, it's a safe space, very safe space. Sounds like it off to visit. Sounds, sounds like what I'm after roughly. 
but don't stay too long. <laughs> I I actually like I I became friends with the guy who his like life's work was touching Kurt Cobain's guitars, and I just at that point I had to draw a line. Uh, another another guy I knew, um, he wanted to go see the Unwound so badly, but that that whole thing, you know, it goes it spins off into K Records and uh, you know uh, Riot Girl, Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, uh, Beat Happening. Um, there's this whole subculture that is still very very prominent it's the you know it's the opening scene of portlandia season one <laughs> <laughs> i mean you want to talk about the dream of the 90s being alive go to olympia washington oh wow yeah i feel like they would probably only only allow me to visit for a day just i would probably be marked as an outsider and cast out just wear uh, a flannel you'll be fine you'll blend right in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I, in junior high school, I was the kid who I had a Pearl Jam shirt that I got from Mervyn's, but I did not have a Pearl Jam record until many years later. So <laughs> that's kind of who I was. No, it's I mean, it, it's totally fine. I mean, I, I think that I had plenty of T-shirts of bands that I'd never heard before. <laughs> like, I think uh, my first one was like a silver chair shirt, but you know, a ministry, like I, I still, somebody gave me back my ministry shirt that I had in high school, never heard ministry before, but I could buy the shirt, but I couldn't buy the CD because they didn't have it in the record store. But they had the shirt. It was so random, but I was like, here's this filth pig shirt and the guy's got the bloody brain. <laughs> I was like, that's a really cool shirt. And I've seen like other band, you know, other bands wearing that shirt. So I was like, I'm going to buy that shirt. I don't think I listened to ministry until like, well, I was well, like into college. There, 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 I said it. That is my embarrassing <laughs> admission, but gotcha. and I didn't. Yeah. And I, <laughs> unfortunately I didn't see ministry until like last year and I had to walk out cause they had strobes. Oh yeah. I, I can have to, I have to imagine that's something that is probably like, you know, with the injury and everything, you know, going to concerts, if they have strobes, that's probably something that's triggering, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's why I only see the Melvins cause they use red lights. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as far as band t-shirts go, I I was openly mocked for wearing an REM t-shirt so when I was in junior high, so I had to uh, keep that to myself. Um, REM is great. Don't they let anybody great. tell you otherwise, <laughs> ever. I mean, I didn't like them in high school. I did not. I was like, yeah, it's kind of college rock. But that's like, I mean, I liked the Connells, but I didn't like REM, which made no sense at all. I listened to Soul Asylum, but I don't know. Yeah, during the time period, I kind of skipped over most of the grunge stuff and went right to, you know, college radio. So that's what I was about at the time. Well, think about who's alive right now. <laughs> I know. It's not the the grunge folks, no. <laughs> well, I think we I think we discovered some kind of universal truth here. Are you feeling good about everything? Yeah. Yeah. Things are working. Excellent. Podcast worked out. Yeah. yeah feeling no. good? Finally, I think we I think we did it. Cool. <laughs> well, uh, I am eternally grateful for you for uh, sitting in on this. This was fantastic. I had a lovely time. Um, where can people find you online? Only on Twitter. Only on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's that's me. Uh, don't hide is on Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't hide PR. And then uh, Melissa Mazaris. Yeah, on Twitter. Excellent. And then look out for Song Over the Bones coming soon, question mark? Question mark, TBA. Hopefully they don't shoot down my manuscript again. <laughs> we will see. 
Well, I am so excited to read that. I blew through uh, Heavy Metal Headbang in probably like two settings, I think. Oh, wow. Well, thank And you. That means a lot to me. and like in preparation for this, I was, was going to go back and read it again, but time got away from me. So it's uh, I am definitely going to read that before reading the next book, whenever the next book comes out. Yeah, I should send you um, a copy of the audiobook, which was actually recorded at the Reciprocal Studios. Really? Uh, yes, yes, the old Reciprocals. It was the first audiobook to be recorded there. Um, I like it was to me, I could have just mic dropped right there, no pun Mm intended, -hmm. and just been like, I'm not putting this book out, I'm just doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I'll have to send you a comp copy, but I, yeah, I actually read it. So, Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. yeah, well, thank you for having me. It was so nice to finally get to chat IRL. Yeah, I know after years and years, so. <laughs> No. Well, thank you for everything. I appreciate the coverage and, you know, the kindness and all the good stuff. Definitely. Thank you very much.